Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. So Obadiah, Obadiah, we're in the prophecy of Obadiah now, and Obadiah is most likely one of the people who stayed behind. So remember that Jerusalem's been wiped out, Judah is no more, the nation of Israel really is no more. And yet there are some of the poorest to the poor, some of the people that, that Nebuchadnezzar left behind. And he said, just, you know, take care of the vineyards, take care of the land, and I'll let you keep some of the produce. You'll have a place to live. You'll have, a, you know, food to eat, and I will treat you well. Um, and we're going to see that again. So just, just settle in and stay here and don't make trouble and everything will be fine. Um, and so... Um, Obadiah is probably one of those people. He's, he's one of those people who has been left behind and he watches some events unfold and his prophecy is sort of in response. I mean, it's from God, but it's also in response to what he's seen um, as he's watched some events unfold. Remember also just to kind of catch you up or remind you where we were uh, in our last episode, so to speak, is that Jeremiah, He's basically, his work is done, right? This is, everything's been leading up to this moment. The prophecies come true. And the and Nebuchadnezzar's general, under the orders of Nebuchadnezzar, basically makes Jeremiah an offer. He says, you can come and, and kind of have a, a good life, kind of like Daniel, you can come live with us. Um, or you can go back to your home or you can really do anything you want. We won't mess with you. And Jeremiah decides to go back home. So he goes back to hang out. So he and Obadiah are kind of in the same ballpark there hanging out uh, in the vineyards with the poorest of the poor. And, and um, so I said last week, I kind of, I, I like the vision of Jeremiah just finishing out his days in peaceful retirement. Unfortunately, as we're going to find out in chapters 40 through 44, that is not to be his lot. Um, but that's where we are. That's kind of where we are in the story. And we start with the, uh, with Obadiah's prophecy. Um, what is, what it is that Obadiah is watching, the, the, the kind of the purpose of the prophecy here. It's a prophecy against Edom, um, but the reason for this prophecy against Edom and the reason it comes up here is because what happened is the Edomites, as soon as they saw that Israel had fallen, they began to just kick them while they were down. They began to take every advantage they could of the Israelites. So we know, for example, they began to loot. So they began to go into Jerusalem and take everything that the Babylonians didn't take. And so there's not much left. You just have these poor people that are hanging out even these people in the vineyards and, and Edom's coming down on them and it's, and it's just kind of running roughshod over them. And um, the other thing we know happens is that as refugees are fleeing, so there are some, some uh, Israelites that are fleeing and as they're fleeing, Edom is just picking them off. Edom's like just kind of parked and waiting for them to run. And instead of offering them shelter or helping them out, they actually begin to kill them. They begin to attack. Them. So they, they really take advantage of this moment in Israel's life to just uh, again, uh, pile on in a sense. And, uh, and so this prophecy comes from Obadiah. And what's interesting is we know part of the reason this prophecy ends up being fulfilled is because Nebuchadnezzar had made a promise to the Israelites that they would be safe. And when he sees what Edom's doing, he actually comes down on Edom. So again, he becomes God's hand uh, upon uh, of judgment. And in this time upon the Edomites, because they are uh, attacking basically what he regards as his people now. I mean, he's conquered them, he considers them his in that sense. All right, so this is what leads to this prophecy of Obadiah. So here we go. So again, reminders is about 586 BC, if you're keeping track. So the vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. Hold on, let me do something here real quick. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers come to you, would they not leave a few grapes? It's interesting. This echoes something Jeremiah said about Israel. And it does make you wonder if Obadiah isn't intentionally quoting Jeremiah, but applying it to Edom in this moment. But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. 
In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your, where, your warriors, Timon, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down and slaughtered. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune or rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. Give me one second. I got to have Josiah let the dogs in the other door. I'll be right back. Hey, Josiah, can you go kill that chase in the other door, please? Thank you. I could have muted that, but I did tell you what I was doing, so. Okay. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israel and exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So not only is there going to be judgment on them, but ultimately, he says, it's going to be the people of Israel that are going to be occupying lands again at some point. <clears throat> and so that's the prophecy of Obadiah. And that's the entire prophet right there. You just read one whole prophet. Next time someone says, what is Obadiah about? You now know exactly what Obadiah is about. Yes, Meredith. Well, aren't they? I would have thought that they would have been kind of in the same boat as Israel and having been taken over like Babylon and stuff and not doing that well. So you have to remember that, that Nebuchadnezzar is very strategic about where he goes. And Jerusalem's been a thorn. I mean, he kind of left them alone, but they kept rebelling. And because they kept rebelling and seeking out Egypt, they've been a target right now. Edom's probably been quiet. And even as it talks about at the beginning of his prophecy, they feel safe because they're in the cliffs and they're in the clefts and they're on the heights. And probably they strategically, they weren't worth Nebuchadnezzar's time and he didn't really need them. You know, if he's got everyone around them, they're not getting much. So probably they weren't a specific target until they begin to target Israel. Other questions or thoughts? So they were sort of riding on uh, Babylon's coattails, picking up the picking up what was Babylon Babylonians left behind. Yep. Yeah. Took God off. 100%, which God didn't appreciate and means ultimately Nebuchadnezzar didn't appreciate, right? And so yeah. he kind of him. Yep, that's exactly what was happening. And it's particularly troubling to God because he's always discussed, remember Edom comes from Esau. So you've got Jacob produces the Israelites and Esau produces the Edomites and they were brothers. And so God has always treated them like, like they were kin. And that's why even a lot of times he tells Israel, leave Edom alone. A lot of times he's like, don't, don't fight them. Let them have their land. You stay over here. And that's why I think it's even more troubling that they're doing this is, is God's like, come on, you are, that's why he even says at one point, you're attacking your brother Jacob. You know, he's like, you are supposed to be, you're supposed to recognize there's supposed to be some kind of, you know, affection or alliance or at least neutrality with each other. But you are jumping right in here to do everything you can to destroy Israel and it's not appreciated and don't think that just because israel's down that i'm not paying attention so yeah it's a big it's a big deal so i have a question if the, only the poorest of the poor were left jeremiah and obadiah were were they the poorest of the poor or were they just left behind because well in jeremiah's no. case we know it was because nebuchadnezzar said you can stay there if you want well, so we don't know anything about Obadiah. This is the only prophecy we know of his. So I think it's entirely plausible that he was just one of those 
one of those people worked in the vineyards and he was not anybody you know who had any more wealth or or prosperity than that he's just in the vineyards he sees what's happening maybe god is sort of honoring jeremiah's retirement he's like i'll give this prophecy to someone else so he tells obadiah to do it mm. i don't know anything about obadiah but there's no reason to assume he isn't one of those you know refugees one of those poor people who's just kind of hanging uh-huh. out and as for jeremiah he chose that i mean his yeah. or not is just that we know he basically spent what he had on land that he can't access quite yet. Um, and, and we know that uh, he chose, he could have been, you know, in Babylon, and he chose to be here. So is he in the same economic boat? I don't know, but he's living among them. And he's, and he's, I get the sense he's working the vineyards. I get the sense he's just doing what they're doing, most likely. But we don't, we don't know for sure. So there were enough people left behind to keep some sort of agricultural economy going which is why nebuchadnezzar left them behind because there's value in the vineyards right sure he, he um, wants the grapes and yeah yeah totally totally i don't think he's completely mm-hmm. he's done it we talked about before he's pretty smart and so he takes the rich he takes the powerful he takes the noblemen he brings them into the center of babylon to use them and he leaves the poor to work the vineyards because those vineyards have value and why mm-hmm. put some resources to it and, and, it, and it makes sense because before, again, where they've come from was incredible persecution from, the, from their, own, uh, their own people, from other Israelites. We know that was part of the sin God kept getting on the, the Israelites about. And so for them, it's a step up, even though it's basic bondage and, and certainly slave labor, but, but they are able to eat and they do have land to live on, which is probably more than they had. Well, we know it's more than they had under the siege. So again, they're probably most of them were, were pretty content to be there. Although what we're going to see in Jeremiah 40 is they weren't all content with that. And, and some of them had some real concerns about, about whether Nebuchadnezzar was really going to leave them alone or not. So they weren't being beaten up on all the time. I mean, I guess we don't know, but it doesn't seem like it. It seems like, again, there was sort of enough just smarts in Nebuchadnezzar to know that he didn't need to. There was no benefit in beating up on them. They're already his. And they probably work better if he doesn't. And he, he does seem to have that kind of stick of carrot mentality. He's happy to he's happy to give you a carrot when you're already under his control. Yeah. Jeff, were you gonna say something? Your box just lit up, so I didn't know if that meant you were about to say something. Yeah, well I'm just thinking, I mean, presumably Obadiah wrote it down, or at least there were some people there that were still capable of writing. So I mean there may have been some higher up people just to keep everything organized and make sure that you know, all the wine was flowing to Nebuchadnezzar and whatnot, but. Sure. There's probably, been, yeah. there's probably managers of the vineyards too, right? So you probably, and, and I don't know if those are all Babylonians or not. You know, maybe there's some tears here. That could be. The other thing is, you guys remember Baruch? Who remembers who Baruch is? Isn't he the prophesying guy? So actually, that... Baruch was Jeremiah's scribe. Oh, okay. And before he was Jeremiah's scribe, he had an, an important position in the government. We don't know exactly what, but we know that he lost that because of his loyalty to Jeremiah. Um, well, it turns out Baruch is with Jeremiah still. So even here in his loyalties with him, and we know he can write. So is he the one who transcribes Obadiah's prophecies? Um, you know, does he have a position here in the vineyards? We, we don't really know. We just know, in fact, we'll find that out in a second. He's still hanging out with Jeremiah. And he's an educated, once upon a time, you know, certainly more elite individual. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a mixture. I think it's important to point out it's a small number. I don't know what that means, um, but it's a small number. There aren't a lot of Israelites left in Israel at all. Um, none of them in Jerusalem proper. Jerusalem's pretty much empty, um, but they're out in the fields. So uh, here comes so Nebuchadnezzar took all the, the leaders right. and put them in Babylon. Babylon or killed them so that right. they weren't about to rebel and those that were left behind were not leader material maybe well and and again to be fair is a step up so why do they want to mess up yeah with them the siege and even before the siege it appears that things were so bad in Jerusalem they were being oppressed so badly by their own uh, countrymen that for them this is this is definite improvement so you can understand why they would be inclined to, to kind of not go with it. On top of that, yeah. as we'll be reminded again, Jeremiah keeps telling him, settle in, just 
accept it. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be kind to you. You're not betraying God to accept that. Settle in, be good citizens of Babylon, and let him let him do this. And and the fact that Jeremiah now has added credibility to his message by being one of them. In other words, it'd be one thing to say, settle in and do what Nebuchadnezzar wants, but I'm going to go over here and be rich. But to actually be with them saying, hey, I'm here with you. And God has asked us to just be good citizens and be okay with where we are and accept it as God's judgment and wait for him to free us. Um, so we do see he's still giving that message when forced to. And I only say when forced to, because again, I get the sense he's kind of done if he could be, but they won't let him be done. <laughs> So we'll see that here in a second. Hello, Joseph. Welcome. I really like that uh, Obadiah is in here. I mean, it's just a chapter, but it kind of is like a summation of like what's really important that, and that it would be like put in here like by someone else and that it's, you know, and like God's still in charge and here are these just like little country that's not doing very well in this other little country and you know yeah no for sure and i i one of the things i like about going chronologically through the bible is it does make sense of all these prophets i think to us in our minds it's just these prophets are just prophets they're just a bunch of people saying weird things and to go through the history and see oh this is why obadiah is prophesying this is when it's happening this is what's going on and even to remember he's probably just one of them he is probably just a guy working the vineyards it, it does, again, I think, help kind of round it out and, and help us remember these are, these are real stories about real people and, and a real history, and, and uh, it's just a, it just helped. You know, if you just pull out Obadiah and say, we're going to do a study on Obadiah, it, it, it really makes no sense unless you know some of the context and the history. So I think it's cool. I, like, I, I just like getting them back in place and remembering, okay, yeah, that's right. That's who Obadiah is. Not just a weird named guy with one chapter in the Bible. Uh, must be important, as Meredith says, because he's there. Um, I actually didn't have this in the, the list, but 2 Kings 25, verses 22 through 26 is actually where we are before we jump into Jeremiah 40. It's, uh, it's a little bit of history, and we're going to pick it up in, in Jeremiah. Now, I will say this. I was tempted to move 2 Kings 25 a little bit later because there's a spoiler in it. So what we're going to find out in Jeremiah 40 kind of builds some tension. Jeremiah 41 answers the tension. But the passage we're going to read in 2 Kings 25 bypasses over the tension altogether and just tells us what the end result is. So if you don't want the spoiler, I guess you can, you can turn the volume down on your computer until we're past this. But it's all right. We'll get the overview, and then we'll follow the drama through a little bit. So here's what it says. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to be over the people he had left behind in Judah. When all the army officers and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah as governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, Johanan, son of Korea, Sariah, son of Tanhumanth, the Nidophite, Jazaniah, the son of Machathite, and their men. And Gedaliah took an oath to reassure them and their men. Do not be afraid of the Babylonian officials, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. So that's the message that Jeremiah was giving. It's the message the governor now gives as well. In the seventh month, however, Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, son of Elishama, who was of royal blood, came with 10 men and assassinated Gedaliah and also the men of Judah and the Babylonians who were with him at Mizpah. At this, all the people from the least to the greatest, together with the army officers, fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. So we have this little uprising, which doesn't get very far. Um, and, and even before we get into the story in Jeremiah, there's a couple of things we can probably surmise. So number one, it's interesting that the, the author of Kings points out that Ishmael was of royal blood. Uh, why do you think it mentioned, why is that relevant to this story, do you think? Because he thinks he should be king? <laughs> yeah, because he's not, this isn't just an uprising of fear. This is also a power grab. Ishmael's like, I'm of royal blood. I should be the governor. Or if we can ask Nebuchadnezzar, then I'll be the king of, of Jerusalem. I'm like one of the few left um, that could be. So I think that's why the author of Kings mentions that is so that we know, yeah, this isn't completely just about, uh, you know, freeing those oppressed. It's, it's, it's more of a power grab. Um, the other thing is that we see that the result of this is not any sort of power, it's, it's fleeing. It's that once he does this, once he assassinates them, they don't become in power, 
they suddenly realize how much more danger they're in and everybody in all of Israel suddenly realizes, oh my gosh, now we're all dead. This guy blew it for all of us. Ishmael did this and now we're all gonna die. So we're all gonna run to Egypt because now Nebuchadnezzar is surely not gonna be kind to us anymore. So that's, that's kind of the, the very quick overview that we see of the story. And then we're gonna get a longer version of it in Jeremiah 40 through 44. Any comments before we dig into the story a little bit? This is just like the third version of the same story. You had Zedekiah, and then you have like Judah being taken over, and now you have Ishmael. Yes, it is. It is a common story, and you got to remember it's a common story actually across the world, right? I mean, this yeah, is, that's true. This is how things happen most of the time. The, the, in fact, the legacy that Israel had for so long of of David's lineage, you know, kind of determined that was actually unusual. I know. All the movies are always about everybody just honors the king who has the purple, the scarlet pimpernel and shows that he's of royal birth. But the reality is most kingdoms, they don't care about that so much. It's just coup upon coup. Um, I guess England's done pretty well at that for the last century or so, so we can give them credit. Um, but uh, yeah, any other comments before we go on? It's not a coup if you win. Then it's a, a noble you know, recovery of power or something. Correct. So he's royal blood of Judah. Yes. Not not Babylon. And I, yet he's and yet he's killed all the, the people from Judah and the Babylonians as well. Yeah. Yeah. Nice guy. <laughs> Which again, <laughs> he's not really trying to it's it's a lot like the so the French Revolution had this interesting thing that happened, this cycle of violence where where it, it clearly lost its way because as soon as people who were in the uprising gained power, then the people who were below them would, would gain power by killing them. And it was like, there, okay. there, there was no, ever no end, never any end yet. They just kind of kept killing yeah. each other. It's kind of like, that's where Ishmael is. He's like, I don't care if you're Israelite, I don't care if you're Babylonian, I just want to get rid of all the people in my way. And, um, and I'm sure he justified it by saying, these are traitors, right? These people are, are, you know, they're, they're accommodating Babylon and they shouldn't be, despite the fact that God actually explicitly told them to do this. It is interesting that the very words that Gedalia tells them are echoed by Jeremiah later and earlier. So it, again, it's like, you can't really justify this isn't from God unless you're gonna discount Jeremiah as a prophet, which at this point you would think would be hard to do, but of course, it's not really hard to do if you don't like Jeremiah anyway. Any other thoughts? Interesting right. that they all went to Egypt. Yeah, we're going to see more Once of that here. again. Once again, that's right. This is the this is the familiar type. When when you get afraid of of what's happening to you, you have a choice. You run to God or you run to Egypt. And not that Egypt is actually bad, but that's the metaphor. That's the type. That's the picture throughout Scripture. That it's always a choice between God and Egypt. And in this case, it's weird because Babylon, which in the New Testament becomes kind of the definition of the world system of, of wickedness. At this moment, God is very clear. Babylon is where I am. This is where you need to stay. Trust me here, but they don't. They're afraid Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill them, so they want to run to Egypt. And that, that is that classic question. Do you trust God? Do you trust Egypt? Every time you trust Egypt, it turns out badly. It turns out poorly. Um, but it is a cycle they keep forgetting. And of course, you can guess, Jeremiah is going to warn them that this is a bad idea. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump into this and see what happens. So Jeremiah chapter 40, we actually start in verse 7 because we already hit 1 through 6 earlier. When all the army officers and their men, <coughs> excuse me, when all their army officers and their men who were still in the open country heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, as governor of the land and had put him in charge of the men, women, and children who were the poorest in the land and who had not been carried into exile to Babylon, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, Yohanan, and Jonathan, the sons of Keriah, Sariah, son of Tanhumath, the sons of Ephi, the Nidapathite, and Jazaniah, the son of the Machathite, and their men. Gedaliah, son of Achim, the son of Shaphan, took an oath to reassure them and their men. Do not be afraid to serve the Babylonians, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. I myself will stay at Mizpah to represent you before the Babylonians who come to us. By the way, it's not clear to me if Gedaliah is a, an Israelite or a Babylonian. He could be an Israelite, 
that that Nebuchadnezzar has appointed as governor. The way, because he talks about the Babylonians as if they're another group, but it's unclear. I'm not sure. He says, I myself will stay at Mizpah to represent you before the Babylonians who come to us, but you are to harvest the wine, summer fruit, and olive oil, and put them in your storage jars and live in the towns you have taken over. When all the Jews in Moab, Ammon, Edom, and all the other countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah son of Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, as governor over them, they all came back to the land of Judah to Gedaliah Mizpah from all the countries where they had been scattered. And they harvested an abundance of wine and summer fruit. And Yohanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers still in the open country came to Gedaliah Mizpah and said to him, Did you know that Balas, king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael of Nathaniah to take your life? So this is, a, this is, again, a longer version of the story. So things are going well. He says, go back. I think even the mention of storage jars is indicating that there's going to be enough of the wine left over for them to store. It's not all just going to be, I'm sure a, a portion of it is going to go to Babylon for sure. But there's enough for them. You know, they're actually going to stay on the land. They're going to have the fruit. It's such a good sort of life under Nebuchadnezzar that, that Israelites who fled to other countries are coming back to do this. And so it's going pretty well, but then they get this report. All these people come to, to uh, Gedaliah and they say, hey, there's someone who's going to kill you. There's an assassin coming. But Gedaliah, son of Ahikim, did not believe them. Then Johanan, son of Karius, said privately to Gedaliah and Mizpah, let me go and kill Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life and cause all the Jews who are gathered around you to be scattered and the remnant of Judah to perish? But Gedaliah, son of Ahikim, said to Johan, son of Korea, don't do such a thing. What you are saying about Ishmael is not true. So remember, actually, Yohanan was one of the other people who came to Gedaliah. So apparently there was kind of a schism. He tells them it's going to be okay. Ishmael doesn't believe him, is going to kill him. Yohanan believes him and says, let me go kill Ishmael. Gedaliah says, ah, relax, it's no big deal. It's all going to be okay. And if we didn't have the spoiler, we wouldn't know what the next part of this story is. But we do know Gedaliah is wrong. <laughs> it is a big deal and it is a problem. And that leads us to Jeremiah 41. In the seventh month, Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, son of Elishama, who was of royal blood and who had been one of the king's officers, came with 10 men to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, at Mizpah. And while they were eating together there, Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, and the 10 men who were with him, got up and struck down Gedaliah, son of Achim, son of Shaphan, with the sword, killing the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. Ishmael also killed all the men of Judah who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah, as well as the Babylonian soldiers who were there. The day after Gedaliah's assassination, before anyone knew about it, 80 men who had shaved off their beards, torn their clothes, and cut themselves came from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria, bringing grain offerings and incense with them to the house of the Lord. This is a weird moment. It's not even the main point, but the fact that it mentions these people are bringing incense and offerings to the house of the Lord, that's not positive. On the other hand, they've shaved their beards and torn their clothes. That's okay, but they've cut themselves. That's something that is not an Israelite tradition. That's, that's other worshipers of other gods' traditions. We saw that, for example, with the prophets of Baal, that they, cut, they would cut themselves in their worship. And so this is clearly some sort of mixed, strange group, right? They're, they're, it again shows that Jerusalem has not purged sort of the idolatry out of them, which we wouldn't necessarily expected them to in the middle of the exile. But, there's, but they're coming... They're coming to offer sacrifices. Now, it's also weird because there is no house of the Lord. So I don't know exactly what this refers to because the temple's gone. But nonetheless, here we are. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, went out from Mizpah to meet them. And maybe it means a Babylonian house of the Lord. Maybe it's talking about a different God. Again, the whole thing is pretty unclear. But none of that's the main point. Here's the main point. Uh, weeping as he went. When he met them, he said, come to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam. And when they went into the city, Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, and the men who were with them, slaughtered them and threw them into a cistern. This is the main point. He's just kind of gone crazy. So here come these strangers to worship, and he's like, ah, more people. So he lures them all in, pretending he's grieving over Ishmael, and he kills them all, and he throws them in a big pit. A pit which apparently has been designed for uh, throwing people into. So it's there. It's convenient. But 10 of them said to Ishmael, don't kill us. We have wheat and barley, olive oil and honey hidden in a field. So he let them alone and did not kill them with the others. So he's open to bribery, I think is, is, is what we're learning here. Now the cistern where he threw all the bodies of the men he had killed along with Gedaliah was the one King Esau had made as part of his defense against the Basha king of Israel. 
Ishmael, son of Nephaniah, filled it with the dead. Ishmael made captives of all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, along with all the others who left there, over whom Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. When Yohanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers who were with them heard about all the crimes Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had committed, they took all their men and went to fight Ishmael, son of Nethaniah. They caught up with them near the great pool of Gibeon. When all the people Ishmael with them, had with him saw Yohanan, son of Korea, and the army officers who were with him, they were glad. All the people Ishmael had taken captive at Mizpah turned and went over to Johanan, son of Korea. Not a big surprise. He's captured all these people. They're like, well, we're guy who's rescuing us. But Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and eight of his men escaped from Johanan and fled to the Ammonites. Then Johanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers who were with him led away all the people of Mizpah who had survived, whom Johanan had recovered from Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, after Ishmael had assassinated Gedaliah, son of Ahikam the soldiers, women, children, and court officials he had recovered from Gibeon. And they went on, stopping at Gareth Kerim near Bethlehem on their way to Egypt to escape the Babylonians. They were afraid of them because Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had killed Gedaliah, son of Ahikim, whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. So it's a mess. So you have the guy who comes <laughs> in to rescue the people that were taken captive by the guy who killed the king. He's not really doing well. He's on the run. He's heading to Ammon. He eventually ends up escaping just him and eight people. It's impressive what him and his group of 10 people were able to do up till now. But they end up escaping. But these guys now, they don't know what to do. They're like, we can't just go back to Jerusalem. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar is going to hear that we killed. He's not going to care if it was me or him. He's just going to know that the Israelites had an uprising and killed his governor. And we're all done for. So we're going to run to Egypt. So that is where we are in the story. Before we go on to chapter 42, any comments or questions about what's happening? It's so weird that he like took all those people with him. That I don't get that. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, are they, are, okay. they, are they slaves? Are they, you know, the fact that it says they went over to Yohanan, are they people he thinks he can persuade to be on his side to fight against Babylon? Um, you know, why is he taking some of them captive? I don't know. Okay. Because you do? I don't know. I'm really not sure what is. It doesn't appear to me like he had a plan beyond killing Gedalia. It was kind of like it was. He was kind of winging it, and it didn't wasn't working that great. I don't think. Any other any other thoughts? All right. So we still don't know what's going on with Jeremiah. So here's Jeremiah hanging out in the vineyards, enjoying his retirement, and all this is happening all around him. So let's go on. Then all the army officers, including Yohanan, son of Korea, and Jezaniah, son of Hoshea, and all the people from the least to the greatest, approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. Very reasonable. They're like, if we stay, we're gonna die. We don't know what we're supposed to do. We don't know where to go. We 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 kind of push. It's not our fault. We were we were we thought things were fine. Remember, this guy offered to kill Ishmael. He's like, this is not what I wanted. But they don't know what to do. So they're thinking, you know who's always been right? <laughs> Jeremiah has always been right about all of this. So let's go ask Jeremiah, what on earth are we supposed to do now? What does God want us to do? So that's are these guys are these guys all Israelites? I think so. I, again, they could be some Babylonians, but I think the I think he probably killed all the Babylonians and these others are Israelites. So, but it does say army officers. So I don't know. Again, are yeah. the remember that that Nebuchadnezzar was not opposed to taking those with particular talents and putting them to use. So is it possible that some of these are, are officers, young men, strong young men that he inscripted, conscripted into his own army? Certainly is. And then sent them back to Jerusalem to watch over the Israelites? That's certainly possible. And uh, he, they're referring to this to God as Lord your God, not Lord our God. Yeah, but I would think that would be a reasonable thing for most of the Israelites. They, they clearly showed themselves not to be um, yeah. Not yeah. following God. He's right? not their God. Yeah. I think that's entirely possible. But that is a good point, And it maybe gives you a little hint as to what's going to happen here. So they go to Jeremiah. 
They say, ask God what we should do. And we promise you, we'll do whatever he says. Do we want to take odds on that? Well, it's good they went to Jeremiah, at least. Yes. This is their, <laughs> their best thing they've done, this whole story. Yeah, if their lips are moving, their minds. <laughs> yeah. um, I have heard you, replied Jeremiah the prophet. I will certainly pray to the Lord your God as you have requested. I will tell you everything the Lord says and will keep nothing back from you. Jeremiah's like, look, that is one thing you can count on from me. You know, that is what I do. So you want to know exactly what he thinks? I promise you I won't hide anything from you. I will lay it all out there. And you know, you know that about me. You know you can trust me because I just been this way from the beginning. All right. Then they said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Sounds great. God himself will witness. If we don't do what you tell us, God tells us, God will be a witness against us. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well with us, for we will obey the Lord our God. They said it like three times. We're going to do what you want, no matter what. Even if it's unfavorable, we're going to do it. Because what we've learned after all this experience is that best place to be is in God's will. And what he tells us to do, we'll do. I mean, it sounds great. Ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So we called together Johanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest. And he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition says, if you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. For I have relented concerning the disaster I have inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. Again, it's really not a new message. It's the same message God gave before. But these guys, I think it's understandable that they wonder if situations have changed now. But Jeremiah is telling him it hasn't really. I am still in control. I told you to settle in. It wasn't your fault that Ishmael messed up. So that's fine. Just do what I asked you to do before. Settle in. And I will make sure that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't destroy you. And I will build you up. Because the judgment that I poured out on you, it's over. I mean, there's still the exile. But the, the destruction is over. And now it's time for, for you to, to begin to just settle in. And eventually I'll restore you. So it's, it's really the same message. Trust me. Settle in. Be good citizens of Babylon. I know you're afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. But understand, I'm in control. Not Nebuchadnezzar. Stick around. Just, I can make this all okay. However, if you say we will not stay in this land and so disobey the Lord your God, and if you say, no, we will go and live in Egypt, God's no fool, he knows what they're wanting to do, where we will, where we will not see war or hear the trumpet or be hungry for bread. It's really interesting. Ever since the Israelites were led out of Egypt, so they were slaves in Egypt for 200 years, and then God leads them out with Moses. And almost from the second they crossed the Red Sea, they begin to have this vision of Egypt, which is completely not their reality. But they remember Egypt as a place where they always ate well, and they always had lots of perks and lots of benefits and lots of freedoms. And to this day, they're still doing it. They're like, if we go to Egypt, there will be no war. Why on earth would they assume that Egypt <laughs> not ever have war? That has not been the experience they've ever had. But they won't go hungry. You know, it's just like they, they're disconnected from reality. He says, if you do that, then you then hear the word of the Lord, you remnant of Judah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. If you are determined to go to Egypt and you do go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there. And the famine you dread will follow you to Egypt. And there you will die. Indeed, all who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there will die by the sword, famine, and plague. Not one of them will survive or escape the disaster I will bring on them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. As my anger and wrath have been poured out on those who lived in Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. It'll be just like it was here. It's going to follow you there. You will be a curse and an object of horror, a curse and an object of reproach. You will never see this place again. You won't come back. Trust me, I will restore you to your lands. Go to Egypt. You won't come back. Remnant of Judah, the Lord has told you, do not go to Egypt. Be sure of this. I warn you today 
that you may, now Jeremiah also knows exactly what they're planning because I love the way he says this. I warn you today that you made a fatal mistake when you sent me to the Lord your God and said, pray to the Lord our God for us, tell us everything he says and we will do it. Jeremiah's like, you made a fatal mistake because I know you didn't mean it. And the problem is you've now made a commitment to obey God and I know you don't want to. And that's even worse than if you had just gone on without committing to God, you'd do what he told you. Now it's like, you're really accountable. I have told you today, but you still have not obeyed the Lord your God in all he sent me to tell you. All right, any comments before we go on to chapter 43? Very cool. When Jeremiah had finished telling the people all the words of the Lord their God, everything the Lord had sent him to tell them, I think it's interesting it notes that again, that Jeremiah is faithful. He didn't hold anything back. Azariah, son of Hoshiah, and Yohanan, son of Priya, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you are lying. <laughs> Why? It's like there's an inability to learn for some of these people. Uh, you are lying. The Lord your God has not sent you to say you must not go to Egypt to settle there. I mean, we're just reading from the outside, and we already have suspicions about any time someone wants to go to Egypt. So the fact that God would say, don't do that, and they're like, that can't be the answer. It's very strange. Okay. I mean, again, they're afraid. They're very afraid that Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill them. And it's not unreasonable, but that's also why it's faith. Can they trust that God will protect them uh, better than the Pharaoh of Egypt will? And right now, they don't. But Baruch, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians so they may kill us or carry us into exile to Babylon. So this is fascinating. I don't know why Baruch gets pulled into this, but apparently now they're blaming Jeremiah's tendency to tell people to settle in and be good citizens of Babylon. This, I think what they perceive is almost a traitorous tendency. Interestingly enough, the very one they had before Ishmael killed everybody, but nonetheless, they now see this tendency as being Baruch's fault. Like it's somehow Baruch is inciting Jeremiah to say these things, which is crazy. And I don't know if that's because he's the scribe. So they're like, well, he's the one who's writing. He must be the one who's really behind it all. Instead of being that he's just transcribing what Jeremiah is saying. I, I don't know why, why he kind of gets the blame here, but nonetheless, it re reminds us Baruch is still around. So Yohan and son of Korea and all the army officers and all the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah. Instead, Yohanan, son of Keria, and all the army officers led away all the remnant of Judah who had come back to live in the land of Judah from all the nations where they had been scattered. There's an interesting thing. We're going to find out there obviously is still a remnant. And I think what we're seeing is this. There's the remnant that stayed in Jerusalem that got left in Jerusalem. And then there's a group that came when they saw that things were good in Jerusalem, working the vineyards for Nebuchadnezzar. They came to work the vineyards. They took advantage of that. Now that that's fallen apart, this same group is now going to go to Egypt. And we begin to see this group of people is definitely just sort of, they're scrambling, right? They're, they're kind of opportunists looking for where safety is. They start from a standpoint of not being able to trust God to work where they are. They're always kind of looking for the greener pasture. And now the greener pasture has become Egypt. So there is still some remnant to be left in Judah when it says all of you will not survive. I think it might be referring specifically to these people who came from other nations and then got in this tussle and now they're all leaving to go to Egypt. Uh, let's see. Led away all the remnant of Judah who come back to live in the land of Judah from all the nations where they've been scattered. They also led away all those who Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the Imperial Guard, had left with Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, the men, the women, the children, and the king's daughters. That might mean also everybody else. So it might just be hyperbole when he says no one survives because there obviously is a remnant. Or maybe all the remnant comes back from Babylon. You can, you can sort that out yourself. And they took Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch, son of Neriah, along with them. Bummer. Bummer. Jeremiah finally got to rest. And now they're like, you're coming with us. We're running to Egypt. I know you said don't go there, but we're going to make you come with us. We're going to kidnap you. And that's what they do. They forcibly take Jeremiah. With them. The big question is why? I mean, what, what, why? He's not someone you like. He doesn't tell you good stuff. It's is it that maybe they think God won't do what he said he would do if Jeremiah is with them? Like, well, he won't kill Jeremiah. He likes Jeremiah. I don't know, because if they think that, then why don't they just do what Jeremiah says? Anyway, so the one guy who doesn't want to go, or the two guys who don't want to go, are now forcibly taken to Egypt. Uh, reminiscent of uh, a few other Israelites throughout their history have been forcibly taken to Egypt. 
And they took Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch son of Neriah along with them. So they entered Egypt in disobedience to the Lord and went as far as Tophanes. In, in Tophanes, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. While the Jews are watching, take some large stones with you and bury them in clay in the brick pavement at the entrance to the Pharaoh's palace in Tophanes. Then say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. I will send for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will set his throne over these stones I have buried here. He will spread his royal canopy above them. He will come and attack Egypt, bringing death to those destined for death, captivity to those destined for captivity, and the sword to those destined for the sword. He will set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt. He will burn their temples and take their gods captive. As a shepherd picks his garment clean of lice, so he will pick Egypt clean and depart. There in the temple of the sun in Egypt, he will demolish the sacred pillars and will burn down the temples of the gods of Egypt. The only major skirmishes Egypt has had with Nebuchadnezzar so far have been outside of Egypt's territory. Nebuchadnezzar has left them not alone, but he's really not targeted them. And now God is saying, here's the irony. You just ran from the safest place in the world to the next target for Nebuchadnezzar. And I warned you not to go here. But now you're going to see you can't escape it. It's coming. And now it's coming here. Jeremiah 44. This word came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews living in Lower Egypt, in Migdal, Tophanes, and Memphis, and in Upper Egypt. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You saw the great disaster I brought on Jerusalem and all the towns of Judah. Today they lie deserted and in ruins because of the evil they have done. They aroused my anger by burning incense too and worshiping other gods that neither they nor your ancestors ever knew. Again and again I sent my servants, the prophets, who said, Do not do this detestable thing that I hate. But they did not listen or pay attention. They did not turn from their wickedness or stop burning incense to other gods. Therefore, my fierce anger was poured out. It raged against the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem and made them the desolate ruins they are today. Now this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Why bring such great disaster on yourselves by cutting off from Judah the men and women, the children and infants, and so leave yourselves without a remnant? Why arouse my anger with what your hands have made, burning incense to other gods in Egypt, where you have come to live? You will destroy yourselves and make yourself a curse and an object of reproach among all the nations on earth. Have you forgotten the wickedness committed by your ancestors and by the kings and queens of Judah and the wickedness committed by you and your wives in the land of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? To this day, they have not humbled themselves or shown reverence, nor have they followed my law and the decrees I set before you and your ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. I am determined to bring disaster on you and to destroy all Judah. I will take away the remnant of Judah who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there. They will all perish in Egypt. They will fall by the sword or die from famine. From the least to the greatest, they will die by sword or famine. They will become a curse and an object of horror, a curse and an object of reproach. I will punish those who live in Egypt with the sword, the famine, and the plague as I punished Jerusalem. None of the remnant of Judah who have gone to live in Egypt will escape or survive to return to the land of Judah to which they long to return and live. None will return except a few fugitives. So there's that. There will be a few. Then all the men who knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods, along with all the women who were present, a large assembly, and all the people living in Lower and Upper Egypt, said Jeremiah, said to Jeremiah, sorry, then those people said to Jeremiah, we will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. And Jeremiah said, what else is new? We will certainly, we will certainly do everything we said we would. I love this. They're like, so now they're like, we're not only not going to listen to you, we're doubling down. We're going to, we're going to trust in the queen of heaven is what it's going to come to. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven and we'll pour out drink offerings to her just as we and our ancestors, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. They're not even disputing God's record. They're like, yes, all that stuff you said we did, you're right. We're going to keep doing it. You're right. We haven't to this day humbled ourselves. We're going to, we're going to go full bore. Because at that time, we had plenty of food and we're well off and suffered no harm. And here's that delusional thing again, that things were great. Things were great. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've had nothing and, been, and have been perishing by sword and famine. The women added, when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did not our husbands know that we were making cakes and pressed with our images and pouring out drink offerings to her? The point is the husbands are equally uh, culpable here. Then Jeremiah said to all the people, both men and women who are answering him, did not the Lord remember and call to mind the incense burned in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem by you and your ancestors, your kings and your officials and the people of the land? Yeah, he knows you were doing that. 
When the Lord can no longer endure your wicked actions and the detestable things you did, your land became a curse and a desolate waste without inhabitants as it is today. Because you have burned incense and have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed him or followed his law or his decrees or his stipulations, this disaster has come upon you as you now see. It's one of those arguments. Jeremiah is entirely right, but you can begin to see the futility of it. He's like, hey, you're here because of all the things you did, worshiping this queen of heaven. And they're like, we're here because we didn't worship the queen of heaven enough. And Jeremiah's like, that's nonsense. And they're like, but that's what we think. So like, where do you go from there? Then Jeremiah said to all the people, including the women, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah and Egypt. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Jeremiah's like, look, this isn't my argument. This is God's, okay? Just, this is, this is what I do. You and your wives have done what you said you would do. When you promised, we will certainly carry out the vows we made to burn incense and pour out drink offerings to the king of heaven. Go ahead then, do what you promised. Keep your vows, but hear the word of the Lord, all you Jews living in Egypt. I swear by my great name, says the Lord. I love this because it's it's now we're competing vows. He's like, you have vowed to do this. Well, here's my vow. Go ahead, complete your vow. I'm going to complete my vow. I swear by my great name, says the Lord, that no one from Judah living anywhere in Egypt will ever again invoke my name or swear. As surely as the sovereign Lord lives, for I am watching over them for harm, not for good. The Jews in Egypt will perish by sword and famine until they are all destroyed. Those who escape the sword and return to the land of Judah from Egypt will be very few. Then the whole remnant of Judah who came to live in Egypt will know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. You make your vow, I'll make mine. Let's see who wins. This will be the sign to you that I will punish you in this place, declares the Lord, so that you will know that my threats of harm against you will surely stand. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to deliver Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hands of his enemies who want to kill him, just as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the enemy who wanted to kill him. You need a sign. The sign's going to be that the Pharaoh you came to for protection is about to be taken by Nebuchadnezzar, just as Nebuchadnezzar took Zedekiah. And that is indeed what happens historically, uh, not very far from there. So that's the story. I did think it might be a little bit short. Any, We have some time. Any comments, any thoughts, any questions, anything, anybody kind of strikes you from this whole passage that you just want to explore a little bit? I do wonder, yeah, why they went to him in the first place. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, because they were hoping he'd say what they wanted him to say, and then they'd have affirmation. I, I I, I will say certainly in a much less significant way, and I'm not, I'm not excluding myself from this tendency either, but I just happen to have seen it as a pastor a lot. I will say that it's not unusual, honestly, for people to come and say, tell me, tell me what you think I should do. Tell me what you think the right thing is. And then for, as a pastor to say, well, it seems like God would want you to do this. And for them to say, well, that can't be right. You're dumb. Um, and so it, it does happen. And, and I don't even have the confidence Jeremiah had. You know, I, I am not a prophet. So I don't feel like when I say that, I'm, I'm trying to piece together wisdom of scripture and faith and my understanding of things. I rarely will say this is what you absolutely have to do. Um, and yet it's still, you know, people will say they want to do whatever God wants. But oftentimes all they really want is to be validated in what they want to do. And again, I don't exclude myself from that. I know that I've been guilty of that myself. So it's a human tendency, I think. It seems like, I can't remember, was it Saul with with Samuel or Ahab with Elijah who kept bringing the prophet in and asking for God's will and then being like, oh, that's not the right answer and sending them away. And they fell into that pattern like several times, like yeah. they wanted to actually hear from God. But then every time they did, they were like, uh, you're not really. So there's this like tenuous, like they want the prophet to be the authority until the prophet doesn't agree with them. That's right. That's right. Are yeah. you trying to like manipulate the prophet somehow or something? It's not necessarily that. It's just if you if you have something you want to do and you suspect, I think they suspected the prophet would tell them what they wanted to hear. And so that seemed like a good plan. But if they suspected he wasn't going to tell them what they were going to hear, they weren't going to say it, which is why when he didn't, they're like, oh, you're lying. That can't be right. <laughs> we were this so is also, what you were going to say. This is, the, this is the first time they've actually asked him I to go to God. I know. And again, every I, other time he's just been yelling at them. I know. And it's because he has unique credibility right now. He is, he is, you know, 
one of the very, very, very few prophets, I would say the only one, but we know Obadiah's around, Ezekiel's around. He's one of the very few prophets who has been proven right for his last yeah. 40 years of prophecy. He's like, I've been saved yeah. for 40 years. And the other prophets said I was wrong, and here we are. And I, that, is, that is why it is also surprising that he says it, and they're like, no, 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 you're just being influenced by other people, or you're lying. I like also that their argument against him isn't even consistent. On the one hand, they say you're lying. On the other hand, they're saying that Baruch is just, you know, causing you to say this. Well, which is it? You know, I guess it could be both, but that's sort of weird. But it doesn't matter. Anything they can do to discredit him after crediting him. And I love what he says when he's like, look, you made a fatal mistake because I knew when you came to me, you weren't going to do what God told you. Well, go ahead, Meredith. It's kind of emphasizing to, because it's sort of the opposite of what Nebuchadnezzar did a while ago. And he, all the, all of his advisors, he was like, I know you're going to tell me what I want to hear. So I'm going to find someone who's not going to do that. And he sought Daniel out. Whereas they're like, oh, somebody else what we want to hear. And then when they don't, they turn on them. So that's just kind of interesting. That's a really good point. And I think when we were talked about that, for those who were here, we pointed that out. That Nebuchadnezzar, he's a, he's not a good guy. I don't want to paint him with too rosy a picture, but he's a very complex guy. But it is fascinating to me that he did what a lot of the kings of Israel would never do, which is he said, I want a prophet who can tell me my dreams so that I know when they tell me what it means that it really came from God. And he didn't just want to hear what what he wanted to hear. He wanted to hear what was actually the truth. And there is a certain courage in that, that contemporaries of his in Israel. Um, and that's, that is kind of fascinating. Well, and I guess, I was just going to say, yeah, well, and sin does make us stupid and we do have an enemy. And so, I mean, sure. If they're not going to follow God anyway, then I mean, God's going to prove again who he is. Yeah, the bottom line is they were afraid. They were afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. And when it came down to it, they were more afraid of Nebuchadnezzar than of God. And they trusted that the Pharaoh would protect them from both Nebuchadnezzar and God. But the only way they could justify that was to claim that Jeremiah wasn't speaking for God. But I think at the bottom line, it really came down to the fact that they just, and, and it shows it again when they double down in Egypt. They're like, well, we just didn't worship our false gods enough. Never does it occur to them to say, actually, a problem is we never worshiped the true God. We didn't come back to the true God. He's calling us back. He said, protect us. We think it's because we didn't worship these other guys enough. And um, it's, again, they're just afraid and they're scrambling and scrambling and they're desperate. But Jeremiah is trying to encourage them, turn your desperation to God. And I think in little, in much smaller ways, this is what we experience in our lives a lot. That, that we come to a place and places trust God or trust Egypt. And sometimes it's just easier. We just say, well, Egypt just makes so much sense to me in my head and then we go to egypt and it doesn't work out and like the like the israelites often when that happens we blame god we turn around and say well god you didn't protect me from this and god says yeah i'm trying to get you out of egypt you know and i i certainly find that cycle happens in my life so i'm not picking on anyone else but i think that is part of what happens to us um when we don't trust god the uh, these people were accustomed to going to the other prophets too who told them what they wanted to hear those guys are all dead now it's very true which again part of you is like where are they what does that mean you know? <laughs> but yes you're absolutely right they you know when jeremiah says i think that's even why he says it when he says i won't hold anything back it's because that's unique about him all these false prophets said whatever they wanted to hear and he's telling them, I'm not going to do that. You know, if you come to me, I'm not going to do that. I'm only going to tell you what God tells me. I don't know how to do it any other way. I've been doing it for 40 years. I don't know how to do it any other way. Um, and Jeremiah, because of that, he does have a history which helps him, right? He can look back and say, I've been doing it for 40 years. I'm still alive. I'm still here. A lot of all the other prophets are dead. You know, God has protected me, even though it looked like my life was going to be much shorter than the other so, you know, it works both ways. You know, he, he can look back at a, at a life of faith and see that, in fact, God protected him. Again, doesn't keep them from taking him off to Egypt. But even when they do, he still stands by, look, I trust God. God's going to protect me. He's the only one who can. You know, I can't, I can't go to Pharaoh now. I can't go to you guys. I can't change my story for you. Because uh, it's God who is uh, really opposed to us right now. And I want to be on the side of God. So he sticks with that. 
other thoughts? They're just, they're just so intense about it. I mean, I guess if you like are afraid or whatever, you like want to convince yourself maybe or something. I don't know, but it's just like, oh my goodness, you did it. Yeah. You didn't have to like disobey like that emphatically. <laughs> I can tear my push them into a corner and they push themselves That's into true. I mean, I think I think it's one of those things where Jeremiah's like, look, you gotta you gotta decide. And they're like, fine, I'll decide this. And then Jeremiah's like, fine, do that. And here's what God's decided. And we'll see who wins, you know. Yeah. Although initially they said it, didn't they say it like three times or something? Like they're like, whatever you say, we'll do. Oh, they totally did. They swear like all they these totally, vows and stuff for it. They totally did. But the second he was like, well, it's this. They're like, no, that's not right. That can't be right. <laughs> Sounds fake. Other comments? It's interesting to think for me that even at this moment, right, the judgment has come. And even in the midst of the judgment, God says to them, you can ride this judgment out with a fair degree of prosperity and comfort, which is crazy because it's judgment. I understand you won't have your land. Some of you have lost a lot. It's not, there's no loss. There's a lot. You've lost family members. You've lost prestige. You've lost status. You may have lost wealth. You've lost your freedom to a degree. But you can ride it out in relative comfort and peace and know that in 75 years, you'll be back or your children will be back. You can, you even have the option of writing it. You know, there's even a potential you'll write it out with even greater prosperity, like a Daniel. You know, just, just settle in. That's all I'm asking. You can do that. And they don't. And because of that, it's like this judgment just keeps going. You know, he's like, well, now it's going to follow you to Egypt. And, and it's like they have this choice, you know, make it easier, make it harder you know, by accepting what God's doing, you make it easier or you keep fighting it. It just keeps getting worse and worse. I know there, there, I don't know if you guys, any of you who are parents have ever had this experience and I'm not sure this is good parenting, by the way, I'm not, not endorsing anything here, but I get in this trap sometimes. I try not to get there because it's particularly frustrating, but you get in this trap where you're like, okay, say another word and you're going to lose, you know, uh, you're going to have another hour of grounding. And then they say another word and you're like, okay, keep going. It's going to be another hour. Now it's going to be a day. Now it's going to be a week. And, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And you're just in your head. You're like, why don't they just stop? <laughs> this is, this is ridiculous. I'm giving them, you know, a way out and they keep going. And it is, it is like, there's a certain point where, you know, the pride kicks in the, the back against the wall behavior kicks in. And with some of my children, I, you know, I don't want to lose that battle of wills, but I also know that we're going to be looking at a three-year grounding if I don't come up with a different, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just crazy the way that the, the heels get dug in sometimes. Um, and that's why Lorian hasn't been able to leave her house for the last four years. So <laughs> you thought the pandemic was the last year for her, but really she's just been grounded. So. No, she was at my house last Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, I do not ground my 20 whatever year old child. She that's is. right, 20 whatever. Um, I, 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 that's correct. Right? 22. 22. No, that would be too young. Um, I, uh, no, but it does make me think too of the Psalm where David talks about like, where can I hide from you? And I think for David, it is at that point of source of comfort, but these is really, this group is really learning that the hard way. They keep trying. They're like, we're going to find a place where we can hide from God. And God is like, no, it's, I'm going to follow you to Egypt. I'm going to pursue you anywhere you go. Yep. No, that's really Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking too what you, and I was actually thinking about my kids and we have that, you know, kind of like the similar thing, but, um, and, and I just, especially with one of my kids, I know it'll just keep going. And then, but then if, um, like I'm able to say, okay, well, why don't you just like stop for a minute and, you know, like think about this and see what this is and do you really want this to happen? And then, you know, and stuff. And then they're usually like, well, no, and like come back and stuff. And I mean, it makes sense that they would, I don't know, they've already taken this path. I mean, it would seem like very courageous to like turn around at this for point. Sure. I mean, there is a certain point at which you have invested everything in one direction and it is very hard to say I'm wrong and I'm going to change the other direction. And what I would say about that is 
That's why Jeremiah's been warning them for 40 years. <laughs> so that they yeah. didn't have to do this on a dime. So they didn't have to wait until the last moment, <laughs> you know, and yeah, yeah. And mostly in this story, I feel for Jeremiah because I really do, I, it may be totally the wrong picture. Maybe he was bored in retirement, really wanted to get back out there. But I just have this picture of him like, it's done. I, find, I did it. Now we're just going to live through the exile. I will spend my days in this vineyard. And they just don't let him. They just drag him right back in. He's right back to work. And then they steal him off to Egypt. And he's the one guy who doesn't want to go to Egypt. I'm just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then even yeah. in Egypt, he has to keep working. You know, he's like, he doesn't even get to relax in Egypt. He's like, and I got to keep telling you guys what's going to happen to you. It's crazy. It is the, it is, and I'm sure this was brought up before, but it is the place where his work feels the most fruitless. Like legitimately, there is no reason for him to be here anymore. Yeah. Except to but, get them to this point where they feel they have nowhere else to go. Yeah. I mean, I guess the other way you can uh, look at it is the way Lorraine said it. You know, God is showing them they can't get away from him. And the fact that Jeremiah is with them, constantly saying to them, God's here, is, is maybe part of the way that God also, you know, continues to remind them, you can't escape me for some strange reason. You brought Jeremiah along to remind you that you can't. <laughs> so well also too i mean how well were they listening for that last those last 40 years and it's different people too right i mean it's not the same people but yeah it's crazy any other thoughts all right well we'll pick up with ezekiel next week and thank you for joining us the journey is a ministry of discipleship matters which is an extension of focus church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.